Welcome everyone to the ICEJ's weekly webinar coming to you from here in the Christian Embassy's headquarters in Jerusalem. I'm David Parsons, Vice President and International Spokesman. And uh, this week's webinar uh, is part of our Envision Conference for pastors and ministry leaders as well. We're in our second week of vision, winding up uh, our second week of uh, programming for this a webinar this afternoon with a special guest. And then this evening, we will have a keynote message and a whole service with worship. Uh, we'll have uh, Dr. Billy Wilson, the president of RRU, as our keynote speaker for tonight. And also Jurgen Bueller, our president, will be speaking with Mike Bickle of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. So make sure you tune out. It's uh, eight o'clock Jerusalem time for this evening's program. But uh, first we have our webinar today. And um, we're really, really pleased to bring uh, to you Dr. Brad H. Young. He's professor of biblical literature in Judeo-Christian studies in the Graduate School of Theology at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Good to see you, Brad. Uh, Wonderful we, to be here today. Yes. Now, uh, Brad uh, uh, studied for, after he got an undergraduate degree at Oral Roberts, he came to Jerusalem and studied for 10 years at Hebrew University, 10, uh, uh, a master's and a uh, doctorate in early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism. He studied under the great uh, Jewish Orthodox professor, Dr. Uh, professor David Flusser, who uh, was uh, the leading Orthodox Jewish expert on early Christianity, Second Temple Judaism. And since then, Brad spent 30, over 30 years teaching at Oral Roberts. Uh, I think in these later years, more in the graduate school there and has become uh, you know, one of the best in Hebraic uh, roots studies, the, the Hebraic uh, heritage of the New Testament, the early believers, the Jewishness of Jesus. He's written quite a few books on it. Jesus, the Jewish theologian, Paul, the Jewish th theologian, several books on the parables of Jesus, the Jewishness of the Lord's Prayer. And now he has a new book, the Newer Testament. It's a translation of the New Testament that uh, <clears throat> tries to look at some of the early Hebraic and uh, Aramaic manuscripts that we know that the Greek version of the New Testament were, were uh, produced, helped produce the Greek version in order to help us understand the authentic Hebraic heritage of Jesus and his followers and all the New Testament scriptures. And Brad, we want to go right into this. I think we're just going to let you sort of give an introduction to why you wrote this book and what's its value, and then I'll come back with some questions. <clears throat> well, thank you, David, so much. It's such an honor to be here. I want to express my thanks to Dr. Jurgen Bueller and the great spiritual leadership that he gives through the International Christian Embassy. And David, I just value your team and, and the work that you do to enable Christians to have a voice. Uh, sometimes our countries that we live in don't always understand the situation in Israel, but as Christians, we want to stand with Israel and to uh, work for peace together. And 
And thank you so much for this opportunity to share uh, what's been a 25-year journey for me in translating the New Testament. You mentioned uh, David Flusser. I remember studying in his class at the university how, you know, we never used a, a modern Hebrew translation. I mean, all the classes were in Hebrew, but we used the Greek, and we were constantly struggling, translating. We could see a Hebrew undertext, uh, you know, Aramaic, the, the, the whole atmosphere of the first century. And uh, I often thought just a, a clearer translation and understanding of the first century context would enable Christians to value and appreciate the message of the kingdom and the life and teachings of Jesus. And so uh, I embarked on this and it's been so, so meaningful to me to share it with my students, reading it, reading it in the family, and now uh, have to have it published uh, with our HebrewHeritageBible.com um, and uh, to be able to come and share at Envision. This is just a, a tremendous blessing. I want to thank you so much. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the, the Newer Testament. Uh, we called it the Newer Testament to emphasize the interconnectedness with the Hebrew scriptures, what maybe we say the Older Testament rather than say old in the sense that maybe it's no longer valid. Some people even says the authentic Testament, the original Testament. But of course, the Hebrew scriptures is a platform for understanding the Newer Testament. And I hope that we can look at several threes today, three of our goals, uh, three of the load-bearing pillars that undergird, undergird and strengthen good translation work, three steps that we use in translation, and uh, especially three changes, because a change of language, uh, a change of family, and a change of heart can bring us into the first century environment to join in the conversation and to experience uh, more fully the historical reality of the New Testament. Uh, I would say that most translations that we're familiar with are made to be read in the cathedral for a specific church or denomination, a translation by church Christians for a Christian audience, sometimes dominated by the doctrine of replacement theology. Uh, when you switch the the, the audience, it can make a big difference. Uh, we are looking at the New Testament as something that was originally written by Jewish believers to be read, studied, and memorized by Jews in their family environment, dominated by the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven, undergirded by Jewish ethical monotheism. Three of our goals uh, in this translation has been first to hear as they heard. Uh, this is a high goal, and it's kind of difficult for people to grasp sometimes. They say, well, don't all translations do that? Well, in a sense, they do, but many times they're focusing on the modern context, and most translations just go from Greek to English, and they don't think about this intermediate step that we emphasize of hearing as they heard. For instance, John 3.16, we say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, if we look at the word world, I've seen some translators talk about the cosmos or just loving creation and everything. But think about Psalm 100 in Hebrew. A psalm of thanksgiving. 
Let the whole earth make a joyful noise to the Lord. Enter into his courts with thanksgiving. Here's a celebration that even of tabernacles of Shavuot going in to the temple, Pentecost, Shavuot, or, or Sukkot, uh, all of the times of worship. But uh, we translated it to hear as they heard, for God so loved the people of the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, I, I discussed this translation with a, a Jewish friend, uh, very close to me, who, who survived the Holocaust, Nazi-occupied Europe, and worked as a linguist, and was concerned, as I am, of Christian anti-Semitism. And one thing he said to me, you should say in a translation that Pilate was a Roman governor. And I kind of struggled with that a little bit because I thought, well, you don't want to add a word like Roman if it's not an adjective used in the Greek text. But on the other hand, all of the original readers understood this was the Roman governor, and modern readers do not understand that. You know, the next day after I had that conversation with him, I had a pastor call me on the phone, and he said to me in the middle of this conversation, you know, Dr. Young, I just found out Pilate was not a Jew. I always believed that Pilate was Jewish. And so I realized, well, even in the King James Version, always we have some italicized words, and sometimes we add something for clarity. So we put Roman in square brackets, which shows what we call our functional equivalency to hear as they heard. Think of the word Pharisee. Every dictionary definition is hypocrite. You know, these, these horrible legalists. But if you don't understand the original context that in the first century, the Pharisees were esteemed as spiritual leaders, you kind of miss what the real meaning of the word was. For instance, if you say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, well, most people can smugly say, well, we're so much better than those Pharisees. That's not very hard. But we try to make you hear as they heard. So we translate, unless your righteous way of living exceeds that of the scribes and spiritual leaders. Well, all of us have some spiritual leaders. And let's face it, all of our spiritual leaders sometimes have a problem with preaching and not practicing. We don't always live up to our creed. And, and should we really? I mean, we're all... In a, in a sense, if we're true to, to uh, ourselves, recognize that we don't always live up to the higher standard that we teach and we long to, we're trying to. But Jesus criticized the hypocritical practices of some Pharisees, but at the same time, he upheld many of the teachings of the Pharisees. So our goal is to hear as they heard. And second goal that we have is to value the faith of Jesus. That is the common Judaism of the time, the, the faith and prayers of the family, the worship, the, the celebrations, the biblical feast, and to understand the prayers from the teaching of the people themselves. Uh, and then third, uh, the, the third of the threes that we're talking about today is to strengthen the faith of Christians in Jesus by looking very carefully at the witness, the testimony that's given by the followers of Jesus in the New Testament and proclaiming the kingdom of God, which was undergirded by ethical monotheism. When they asked Jesus, what is the great commandment in the gospel of Mark chapter 12, 29, he started by reciting the Shema, 
שמוע ישראל, אדוני אלוהינו, אדוני אחד, ואהבת את אדוני אלוהיך בכל לבבך. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is the essence of ethical monotheism. He goes on with the ethical aspect of the second is like to the first and greatest, that is, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So these are some of the uh, foundational principles that we have in our translation. I think that we also need in this translation to understand the first century environment, three, what I call load-bearing pillars for undergirding this proclamation of the kingdom uh, in the New Testament uh, with uh, ethical monotheism. The first has to be the Jewishness of Jesus. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, the story I heard about a famous professor who wrote a commentary on, on Romans, it was pretty well known and successful, but he, he liked to start his class, I'm told, by saying, the first thing you must do to be a good Christian is to kill the Jew that's inside of you. Well, one of his students raised her hand and said, Professor, do you mean Jesus? And I think this is, is a real issue today in Bible translation because we can kind of shift the context or we switch the, the, the audience. I, I'm reminded of T. F. Torrance, I like the way in his fine book on Meditations of Christ, he kind of discusses this issue. He, he says that um, we have tried to understand Jesus within the patterns of our own various cultures, so that in the West and the East, we have steadily gentilized, that's right, make Jesus into a Gentile, and that's been our image of Jesus, Jesus the Christian, Jesus the Gentile. As a matter of fact, he says, we have become engaged in plastering upon the face of Jesus, a mask of different Gentile features. Uh, I'd like to point out one example of this, maybe that we could see in Bible translations in Matthew chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, pardon me, and uh, verse uh, 18, where we have Jesus arguing with different Jewish leaders. Now, if we look at this as the context of a family discussion, rather than Jesus, the Christian, fighting his enemies, the Jews, which is what I would call the change of audience that we have a lot of times in the way that we're reading the Bible. But uh, I like the way that esteemed Jewish scholar A.J. Levine said one time, one sure proof that Jesus was Jewish is that he argued with other Jews. As a matter of fact, in this case, where he's talking about a formalism, uh, sometimes trying to uh, apply the law by interpreting it, that if you overinterpret it, you might actually undermine the original meaning of the Torah. And uh, this is an argument that we hear in many of the Jewish sources. As a matter of fact, I think we could say that most of the Pharisees and later Jewish tradition agrees with Jesus' approach here to the halakhic legal issue, that it's not what is outside coming in that causes the heart or causes defilement, but it's what's from within the heart that goes out. And one of the changes that I'm gonna argue for today as we look at a newer translation is, we're really looking for a new translation that will change our hearts to understand 
the word, to have a deeper relationship with God. And it is also my hope that as we get a better translation, it would improve the relationships and understandings and cooperation between the Jewish and Christian communities by looking at a first century source that helps us bridge this gap between us. But uh, look, listen to what Jesus says here. Uh, we'll read from the, uh, our new translation. So he asked them, how is it that you yourselves also fail to understand, talking to the disciples, do you not grasp the teaching that whatever goes inside the individual from outside cannot cause defilement because it does not go into a person's heart, but only into an individual's stomach where it passes through a natural process, purifying all foods and is eliminated into the sewer. So he was teaching what is within a person and comes out that this is really what defiles the individual because what causes defilement is from within a person and comes out of the human heart. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders. And we see here Jesus is really focusing on the heart issue. But uh, I want to point out that if you look at the uh, NIV translation, instead of translating this participle, which is katharizo from the verb to purify, katharizo, just an active participle that's describing the digestive process, they add words to the translation because of a, of a switch of audience. Instead of reading it for private study or Jews talking to Jews, they're thinking of reading it in the church. And the, the NIV translation says, in, instead of purifying all foods, they translated it. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. This is also the translation of the AASV, the Revised Standard Version the New Revised Standard Version, something like, um, thus he declared all foods clean. And all, this, all of a sudden we're introducing a, an aside to what Jesus was actually talking about. Uh, maybe people are hearing this, they think, well now ham and bacon are on the menu now. That actually, if you look at the context, uh, everyone that Jesus is talking to were eating According to the dietary laws, we have no evidence that Jesus had an interest in, you know, dealing with that issue or canceling the Torah. He said, I didn't come to destroy the Torah, but to fulfill it. And with that distracting aside, we are distorting the message of the purity of the heart. And as a matter of fact, Jesus was using an example from the halakha that most Pharisees would agree it's from what is within the heart that causes defilement or what's inside the cup that dis causes defilement. Unlike probably the, the Sadducees, and we know also from the Dead Sea Scrolls and their issues of purity and defilement, it seems that they thought it's from what is without that causes defilement. And so here's a, a argument among Jews of the time. And if we understand it as a family discussion, we might see how Jesus is really emphasizing the attitude of the heart. Well, uh, I think that's one reason why we have to start with the Jewishness of Jesus. Jesus lived as a religious Jew. He said, I was called to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He never wanted to be taken out of the Jewish people. He wanted to be connected. Uh, we also have to see here, I think, something of the Torah. Many times we have this view that grace has replaced Torah 
and Torah is no longer valid. And yet we have this understanding in scripture of the eternal meaning of the Torah, the immutability of the Torah. And Paul actually says in Romans 3, 24, do we cancel the Torah by the preaching of faith? May it never be. Uh, I, I like to translate it, heaven forbid. No, we place the Torah on a firmer footing by the proper understanding and interpretation of it. But when we translate Romans 10, 4 with, as the traditional translations say, for Christ is the end of the law, we have the idea that the word of God has been changed. The Torah is no longer valid. Jesus fulfilled it. Sometimes we call it fulfillment theology, replacement theology, supersessionism. Uh, we say there's no grace in Torah. How can you see no grace in Torah when you read Psalm 103? How do you see no grace in Torah when you read Exodus and we see the loving kindness, the mercy of God and uh, all through the Torah? No, we have to see a dynamic relationship between grace and Torah. And so a better translation of the word end there in Romans 10, 4 is telos, meaning goal or purpose. So the purpose of the Torah is that everyone would come become righteous following the example of abraham that jews and non-jews are being welcoming into this kingdom movement and they are being transformed to live a life that's pleasing to god now apostle paul well he didn't want non-jews to be kind of what we would call pretend jews when they come to faith in christ because there were some laws that dealt specifically as acts 15 shows with the jewish people he himself I think continued to follow Jewish teachings. Maybe at times he might have eaten vegetarian or uh, worked around as, as all religious Jews do in their interactions with non-Jews. But I don't think when he said, I become all things to all people, they says, well, I will steal with somebody that steals. He could become all things to all people by living his life faithfully as a Jewish leader, but also sharing the faith. I think there's also something here in the work of the Holy Spirit, because Paul stresses that the fruit of the Spirit is something that's natural, that leads to a righteous way of living. And there are these works for the self-gratification of the flesh that go against the teachings of Torah, the ethical foundation of monotheism. So uh, the third area that I think we have to keep in mind is understanding of israel the jewishness of jesus the eternal torah and israel as a people israel is mentioned nearly 80 times in the new testament uh probably close to 2400 times in the hebrew scriptures the hebrew scriptures it's always referring to the people of israel their land or uh, it's it's the community uh think about how the first verse of the uh, first book of the New Testament starts by saying that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we mention all of the uh, patriarchs uh, at the beginning, Judah and his brothers. You cannot get more Jewish than that. I would also point out in Romans 9, where Paul defines Israel. Uh, on the one hand, he starts out by saying, I wish that I myself could be cut off for my brother's israel who have not accepted christ so he, he's talking there about israel as an entity those that are faithful to the covenant but have not believed in jesus he says this serves a purpose that the non-jews would come in but he uses the present tense where he goes 
uh, he says, if I read it in our new translation, beginning in verse 2 of Romans 9, that I have deep grief and never-ending anguish in my heart, for I could pray that I myself would be accursed and cut off from the anointed one for the sake of my brothers and sisters, my native people by race. They are the true Israelites. That's a very powerful statement right there. And then he's using the present tense when he says seven things. They have the acceptance as children. They are, have the glorious divine presence, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the temple worship, the promises, and after all, the patriarchs. They are the ones that bring us Jesus, the Messiah, his family line. I'd like to point out that when we look at these, the, the Matan Torah and the Avodah are two of the three things mentioned in the early teachings of the Jewish people by Shimon HaTzadik that three things uphold the law, the, the world, three things that uphold the entire world and the people of the world working together. Well, first it has to be Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, the divine worship, prayer, interaction, worship, entering into the presence of the Lord, and then Gamliut Hasadim. Now, Paul doesn't mention Gamliut Hasadim, acts of tender mercy, but I think this is something that we see as characteristic both in the Jewish world and in the, what Paul is proclaiming here in the church. So Israel, uh, when we have these 80 different uh, references to Israel uh, in the New Testament, is, is really should be seen as the same. Uh, so this is not a theology of the Apostle Paul of replacement or fulfillment in a sense that it's canceled. No, covenants in the Newer Testament are renewed, not canceled. And we see that there is this understanding of a Brit Olam, an eternal covenant that God is making with the people of Israel. And that he's working with both non-Jews and Jews together, which is the vision of the Hebrew prophets from Isaiah, Micah. I love the way that Zephaniah talks about non-Jews coming together with the Jewish people. One shoulder, sometimes we translate it shoulder to shoulder in Zephaniah 3.9, or as that we have the great vision in Zechariah 14 of the Feast of Tabernacles being celebrated by the peoples of the world coming up to worship God together. Isaiah said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And so when we say Christ, the anointed one, is the goal of Torah, the purpose, well, this is the purpose that the kingdom would be proclaimed and that this message of the light of Israel would go to the nations of the world. Now, uh, I think as we look at our translation, we our goal is to use three steps. Most translations have two steps. They go from the Greek to the English, and often the English is thought, well, we want to make something easy to understand, something that conveys the meaning of our church, our denomination. I'm saying that all these are very worthy goals, and I'm very thrilled and happy that the New Testament is written in the cathedral and the church and everywhere that's read and studied. But I want to say that when you want to do a historical reconstruction, a, a retroversion, if you will, of this historical context, you have to use a different approach. And one of the things we need is a change in linguistics, because when we only go from Greek to English, we don't think about what are the Hebrew meanings? Uh, what would this mean in the Jewish community of the first century? And we do have strong church tradition. James Edwards recently wrote the book about the 
Hebrew gospel studying 13 patristic witnesses about a Hebrew gospel. Some say it's Aramaic. You know, we, we can discuss that Aramaic and Hebrew are very similar, but uh, think about what it means to change the language. When the angel uh, in the dream, uh, when uh, talking to Joseph about the, the birth of Jesus, he says, don't, you, you shouldn't worry about taking Mary as your wife because she's already pregnant because he said, when the baby is born, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is uh, Matthew 1.21. Now, the Hebrew language is based on three-letter roots, and the root word for Jesus and the root word for the verb to save come from the same. Yasha, Yod, Shin, Ain, Yeshua, the name Jesus, Yoshia, the verb to save, he will save. So, you know, it really has a play on words. My, my good friend, Gabrielle Grossman in Jerusalem years ago, when we were uh, great linguists, said to me, well, well, you know, that play on words only happens in Hebrew. It doesn't happen in either Greek or Aramaic. Greek uses the word sozo for the verb different. Also, Aramaic, Shabbat you know, parak. I mean, it's going to be a little different verb, but, but there's many instances where I think we can see Hebrew uh, ideas, Hebrew theology in the Apostle Paul. Certainly the Dead Sea Scrolls show us that Jews of the time were writing in Hebrew, and there's evidence that uh, Hebrew was a living language. Uh, Chaim Rabin felt like in Judea in particular, there were areas where people were speaking Hebrew. Uh, so, uh, that you, if you were writing a holy document, what language would you use, Aramaic or Greek? Well, you would use Hebrew as the church fathers give testimony, and then it was translated into Greek, so it would go into all the world. So we have this third step. Let's try to understand the Hebrew meaning, the Jewish context, and then we will give it a Hebrew literal, what we call functional equivalency in our translation into English. I think that sometimes this has some far-reaching uh, implications for how we understand the context in Jewish-Christian relations. I'm thinking of uh, this verse in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, where we have, uh, you know, our translations uh, mentioning the synagogue of Satan. And it's very uh, fascinating to look at this in church literature. If you look at the early commentary by Ocumenius, who wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Some now are dating it to the uh, end of the sixth century, the beginning of the seventh century. He uses the term, the wicked Jews. Uh, he also um, makes this comment that uh, the ones mentioning, mentioned in this text are actually Jews, even though the text itself says that they claim they are Jews, but they are not. I'd like for us to kind of look at this a little bit more specifically and listen to it in our new translation and think about what the context and commentary could help us understand. Uh, Revelation 2.9, I know your sufferings and your poverty, even if you are really rich, and also the blasphemy by those who claim that they are Jewish but are not, and so become a meeting place of Satan. 
Now, now we use the word meeting place based on synagogue in Greek from the, which means meeting place and synagogo, which is means coming together can be any kind of a meeting, but uh, from the Theodosius inscription that was discovered in Jerusalem that described a first century um, inscription talked about the, the synagogue as a place of study. This is also supported by our the way we read the uh, early literature, even the New Testament description of some of the services of an early synagogue, reading the scripture, studying the Bible. The temple was more reserved as a place of prayer. Today, we think of the synagogue more as a place of prayer. Uh, and certainly there are prayers about the Bible and, and other aspects of, of prayer that are there, but, but it's a meeting place of study. And we understand in the early meanings of Christians, they would read the scriptures, they would study, they would read the words of the apostles side by side with the Hebrew scriptures. But uh, here, it makes it very clear that these people are not Jewish. Now, uh, when we read what Ocumenius says, therefore those who are true Jews and the spiritual Israel would be those who confess Christ. In other words, he's not accepting what the Apostle Paul said in Romans, and he's also saying that here in this commentary, he's talking about Jews. Sadly, uh, there was a recording of the Reverend Billy Graham talking with President Nixon, in which he made reference to the synagogue of Satan, and also kind of had a negative portrayal of Jewish influence in the media, and, and when this was made public, uh, Billy Graham deeply regretted it. He couldn't remember all this, but he wrote a, a, an apology. And I think most of the members of the Jewish community appreciated what he said. He deeply regretted it. But I think this canard, this synagogue of Satan is something that kind of infiltrates and, and ex it becomes accepted in the way that we talk about the Jewish people today. And when we look at it in the context of the scripture, he's talking about Christians. Well, why does he call it the meeting place of Satan? I think it would help us if we look at the first century Jewish context and realize that bearing witness for the faith was a challenge. And especially with emperor worship, where you would be forced to burn incense, worship the emperor, or you could be seen as antisocial, uh, against the empire, subversive, and you might even face death. As a matter of fact, here in the book of Revelation, in this context at Pergamon, we hear of Antipas, who gave faithful witness of his faith and became a martyr. We have a lot about martyrs in the early church. Stephen, of course, and John in the book of Acts, who were early martyrs. We heard know of Polycarp. Tertullian, the second century church leader who is thought to be the, the founder of Western theology, the, the father of the Latin church, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We have to realize that at the writing of the book of Revelation, during the time of Domitian, there was intense persecution. As a matter of fact, in archaeology, they have discovered the great altar uh, the altar of Zeus at Pergamum, and some scholars have felt like this may have been the place that Antipas gave his life. If you look here in verse 13 uh, of chapter 2 of Revelation, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is located. 
you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even during the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was martyred before your eyes where Satan lives. Now, I think you've got to kind of connect this word Satan with, you know, the context. And uh, what I would like to suggest, if we look at this in the context, understanding it, is that some believers in Jesus were denying the Lord. They were pretending to be a synagogue in order to avoid persecution. This is because the Roman law made the Jewish people a religio licenta, which is a legal religion that as long as you were considered Jewish, a Jewish institution, you did not have to offer incense to Caesar. You were giving an exemption. But as Christians more and more gained their self-identity and awareness, uh, separate and apart, going moving forward as, as viewed by the Roman authorities, uh, I, I think, of course, the Jewish believers in Jesus always maintain their Jewish identity. But you know, as we see Christianity progressing, especially in Asia Minor and in this context, they would try to prevent themselves from being persecuted by denying Christ, denying the oneness of the Lord, and kind of following with uh, what's more politically correct at the time. And if they could say they're a synagogue and not a, a, community, a meeting place of believers, they could avoid persecution. Now, the author, St. John, when we read the book of Revelation, is very keen on purity. He's very keen on faithfulness to the testimony. And he talks about those who overcome. They say when you say the one who overcomes in Greek, honikon, two, two meanings could be there. One is, well, you overcome, you got away, you weren't harmed, you overcome. But the other meaning that we, I think we also see, uh, Robert Henry Charles, very powerful Bible scholar, wrote about this. The one who overcomes is the one who was martyred and faithfully gave testimony to the Lord for their faith. And so St. John is saying, this is a time that you can't become a synagogue of Satan, a meeting place where you are denying the Lord, but you have to be faithful in giving testimony to it. Uh, I try to make a, a good study note here. The meeting place of Satan, sometimes translated synagogue of Satan, likely refers to Christian gatherings. I think that's the important point here, where Jesus was denied, disowned, or hidden outwardly in order to escape persecution. As long as gatherings of believers were considered to be Jewish, protection against persecution was given because Judaism was a religio licenta, legal religion and Roman jurisprudence. Because of this, Jewish individuals were not forced into worshiping Caesar as God. They believed in the one true God of Israel and refused emperor worship. The Jewish people's faith was considered an ancient religion and was protected by law. Even though Christians shared this belief of ethical monotheism, they were intensely persecuted during the reign of Domitian at the time John wrote Revelation. Earlier, Nero Caesar had blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. They were fed to the lions. They were burned alive. They were falsely accused of horrific crimes. One of the major charges against the Christians was that of atheism, 
they were atheists that is they were denying the roman gods and of course that would make them disloyal to the empire and the entire roman empire so i think if we saw this in the context of being faithful to your witness i think there's also a jewish context to this because uh, in jewish law and jurisprudence there are laws that govern uh, what are you willing to die for and uh, sometimes you have to balance one law against another like uh, we see this discussion about the sabbath laws in the gospels how that jesus says it's right to save life well actually to save life on the sabbath was the basic jewish law especially of the pharisees probably not accepted by the sadducees or the essenes although we don't have full knowledge of all of their laws we do see that in jewish jurisprudence pikuach nefesh that is saving life overrides all the other laws uh, the rabbis quoted leviticus 18 these are the laws that you should live by them you should live by them and not die by them so if you need to perform a healing on the sabbath to save life that should be permitted and i think is especially even today almost all jewish people would agree with that medical treatment that might be uh not be acceptable on this according to the sabbath law should be administered because it saves life anything that reduces suffering uh, on the sabbath should be administered to someone that's sick and suffering uh, but there are three areas that you should die rather than transgress one of them is idolatry i would say here uh, probably what saint john is talking about might even come under the area of idolatry denying christ denying the faith in order to escape persecution uh, on the other hand also uh, adultery any type of incest sexual sins sometimes associated with idolatry as well and also murder you can't murder someone to save yourself the jewish literature says you should be killed and not transgress that law but all the other laws you should uh, try to preserve life there's a very famous uh, discussion of rabbi kiva who uh, was very powerful during the Hadrianic persecutions, a great Torah scholar leading up to it, the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, uh, very close to the time of Jesus. But the Hadrianic persecutions made it illegal for Jews on the pain of death to teach Torah. Well, teach, teaching Torah is not exactly one of these three, but Rabbi Akiva kept teaching Torah. And his friend, Yehuda ben Papos, came to him and says, how can you teach Torah? Don't you realize this is dangerous? This is, could cause death. And Akiva told this beautiful parable. He, he said, well, I'll tell you a story about the fish that were running away from the nets. And they saw the clever fox on the bank. And the fox says, fish, you, you need to get away from those nets. Come on up with me on the shore, and I'll take care of them. We'll live together like our ancestors used to. And the fish said, well, if we will die from the nets and the element that we live in, the water, how much more will we die if we leave the water? And he said, if we neglect to teach Torah, it will be the death of our people. I must teach Torah even if I am killed. Well, Akiva was martyred for his faith. And uh, it's very powerful in the rabbinic literature how they described that they took iron combs and, and tore his flesh. And it happened to be at the time of the recital of the Shema when people were praying, the Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. They have to remember in Jewish tradition, when you say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you are receiving the kingdom of heaven. And the literature talks about Rabbi Kiva 
was receiving the kingdom. And even in death, he prayed and lengthened the, the words of the verse. Uh, and, and he's saying, now I know what it means to love the Lord with all your strength. That I can even give my life as a testimony. Now, in the way that the word Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, that verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, is written in the Hebrew Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It emphasizes the way it's printed by the Masoretes, the word testimony. Because the last letter of Shema is Ayin, which is uh, the first letter of the word witness. The last word of the word one, Echad, is Dalit. You put them together, you are bearing witness. You are giving testimony to your faith. And I think in the book of Revelation, there's something here about not, not trying to avoid persecution uh, in this context. Let me just also refer to uh, Revelation 3, verse 9. This is picked up again. Look at what I will do to those of the meeting place of Satan who claim that they themselves are Jewish, but they are not, for they tell a lie. So uh, why would Billy Graham even, or why would church fathers say that this, these are Jews, and this has become a canard for hating Jews? He's talking about Christians. Why are they denying the Lord? I, and so when we look in Revelation chapter 12, I think a very important verse and seeing the overall context, uh, very powerful and meaningful. So they won victory over him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even when confronted with death. Well, of course, I think all of us like the interpretation that that means all the Christians escape death and persecution. But on the other hand, I think that what St. John was saying is that you should be willing to accept the name of Jesus, to proclaim the kingdom through ethical monotheism, this new life in Christ, proclaim the faith, even if it leads to death. And you will overcome with the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony, even if you are killed, that you must not fear death. You must seek first the kingdom of God and all of its righteousness. Well, I think when we uh, see this new translation, you know, we want, we need to see, have a change of language. We need to have a change of family. We need to see Jesus' family and the Jewish people together. We need to have a change of language in the sense that we don't just look at Greek and English, but we think linguistically of Hebrew and the Jewish context and how language influences culture. What did it mean in the first century? Uh, we, we need to look at the Jewish Jesus, the faith of Jesus as a foundation for strengthening our faith in Jesus, when traditionally sometimes the church has looked at the faith of Jesus as something uh, that's imperfect, completely out of bounds, and we now have grace that has replaced law. No law has grace, grace has law. We have to see how you become, as Paul says, a servants of righteousness, a servants to obey the Lord because of the faith. You have works. Uh, James and Paul, I think, are together on this as they talk about this. We, we bring this out, I think, very powerful way in the translation because this is the foundation that undergirds our translation and guides us. Also, of course, we have to see here a change of heart. 
when Jesus talked about the change of heart, we have to have a change of heart in the way that we look at Jews and Judaism. I remember a few years ago, uh, I know I'm running out of time here, uh, but just uh, kind of conclude uh, my remarks with the experience a few years ago I had when I was teaching a class in Jezreel College near Fulok, near, very close to Nazareth. And this was an international group with Christians from all over the world, small class, but uh, they loved Israel and they're studying about Israel. And, and here we are, we're in a, a Jewish school environment and Arab Christians, Arab Muslims, Jewish, they're studying together, learning. But one of the uh, administrators of the school, he was native born Israeli and he had studied at Harvard and, and was very interested that we had Christians that really love Israel. And I asked him one time to just come and say a few words of greeting to our class. And he, he said something that really stuck with me. He said, I'm a student of Jewish history and I know why you Christians hate us. What I don't know is, why do you love us? And as I've uh, worked on this translation project over these years, it, it, sometimes it gets a little personal. I don't usually talk about this, but I think on this occasion, I'd like to just share, you know, uh, I was privileged to know both of my grandfathers. One of them was kind of dominated with the church doctrine of replacement theology. And sadly, I would say, was had anti-Jewish sentiments and, uh, you know, he was anti-Semitic. Uh, I, I hate to say that. Uh, and I loved him as my grandfather. Now, my other grandfather, my, my mother's father, read the Bible with this awareness that God is keeping his promises to Israel, that Israel is important, that, you know, we've got to understand Jesus in the context. And he loved Israel. He used to talk. He was a Baptist layman. He was a, a very successful businessman. He sent me to Israel for the first time in 1972, a trip that really changed my life. And uh, he was always uh, building bridges with other business leaders that were Jewish in our community and, and developing an understanding. And, and, you know, there wasn't a racist bone in his body anywhere that I could ever detect. You know, uh, but what a difference it makes if we have a translation that's oriented more towards this understanding of the historical, authentic Jesus in the context of his family, his people, honoring the common Judaism of the time, understanding it as strengthening our own faith as Christians in Jesus and helping us understand the Christian witness of Jesus and really fulfilling the goal of Torah, that Israel becomes a light to the nations because the message of God's kingdom, the ethical monotheism of loving God, loving one another, coming into relationship, the message of reconciliation is being proclaimed that we need, I think, a, a fresh translation to understand this change of language, change of family, and really what we want is a change of heart because it is really, as Jesus said, what's within our heart that changes us and will lead to life transformation and will bring us to a greater understanding of Jewish people that we live with today and, and hopefully bring us into a deeper relationship in our times of prayer, our times of study. A lot of times we say, read the Bible. Really, we need to study the Bible. We need to immerse ourselves in the words of the Bible. Uh, I love the way that Isaiah said it. Well, the flower fades, the grass withers, 
but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you so much for giving me a few moments here to share about the Hebrew Heritage Bible New Testament. Thank you, David. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Brad. Uh, catch your breath there for a minute. We're going to ask you a few questions, but we just have to appreciate uh, having uh, not only a true uh, world-class scholar, biblical scholar on the, uh, the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, but someone who, uh, even though he's been a scholar, is a scholar, he's a true believer himself and has this uh, burning passion for the Word of God and for people uh, to understand its original Hebraic context and also to see Jewish-Christian reconciliation. I know he has a real passion for all of these. Brad, I've had an advantage here because I have my copy of the Newer Testament, and uh, I heard a, a webinar you did last year with Dr. Petra Held on it, and this whole thing of the the synagogue of Satan from Revelations chapter two and chapter three, I just find it fascinating and really tragic that for centuries, it was uh, a phrase from Revelation, from the New Testament, that was used to promote Christian anti-Semitism, used in very devious and horrible ways against the Jews. And what you helped us understand is that it actually has sort of the opposite context of what it, how it was interpreted and used throughout the centuries. It's all about Gentile followers of Jesus who during a wave of Roman persecution started hiding in the synagogue because it was a, a grandfathered legal religion and you could hide there for a while and the Holy Spirit was speaking through John and through, through the Lord. I, I don't like this. This is not right. You have to stand up and not deny me in public. I think it's amazing. I know this whole area of Hebraic root studies, some of it has been fueled by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think there's a lot of collaborative effort between Christian and, and Jewish Bible scholars, Jews starting to really delve into the Jewishness of Jesus recapturing him uh, as a Jewish rabbi, a first century rabbi, where he fit in first century Judaism, and part of this is because the Jews are back in their own state. They feel confident now to sort of stand toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but not only to sort of challenge, but to sort of collaborate and, and cooperate to try and understand the New Testament better in a way that you can uh, defang some of these verses that have been used against the Jewish people uh, for centuries. Another one that I'd like to ask you about, to talk about, is from um, Matthew 21, 43, which is where Jesus is talking to the, fair, the those who control temple worship and says the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to another nation or people. And that has been used against the Jews for centuries, even like to support British Israelism. I know the Russian Orthodox Church has taught for centuries that they, Russia is the nation, that the kingdom of God was transferred to it. It gets very nationalistic. But can you just explain even that one verse? I, I'm telling you people, we, we have this book uh, through the ICJ bookstore. It's $35. It's great devotional reading just to read it. But when you first get it, you want to go through, thumb through, and look at all the footnotes 
which he's been selective. He could have said so much more, but this is one of these footnoted areas where uh, I just think it's fascinating what you say here about this particular scripture. We're talking about Matthew 21, verse 43. Well, uh, David, I think first and foremost, you've got to realize that the reference to a nation clearly must refer to Israel because Gentiles are never referred to as the nation. Now, you know, we, we see nationalistically, you know, there were times the German Bismarck, I mean, they thought where Russia is the nation, you know, we've tried to kind of I did read ourselves into the Bible, but uh, Jesus talked about the times of the Gentiles and then the restoration of Israel completely. Um, I think uh, it's very important to kind of see this in the context because Jesus was talking about the corrupt temple uh, leadership that was uh, very much despised by the Pharisees and, and the common people as well. Uh, and these were the Sadducees. Probably they should be understood more as rejecting the oral interpretation of the Torah. That's, that's probably one of their main characteristic features. And so they disagreed with the Pharisees, how they were trying to find the spiritual meaning, the practical application, which we also see a lot of times in Jesus, where he's talking about Midrash, or sometimes he's using Jewish halachan oral tradition to say, what I'm doing is actually upholding the Torah. But here, in, a, in the note, uh, this is one place where I think we needed a note. Um, I, I hope people will be able to go to the International Christian Embassy's bookstore. You have so many wonderful books, and I feel so honored that you put the Hebrew Heritage Bible Newer Testament there, where it's easily available to so many that love the embassy. But we're kind of, we, we, we don't, I think there's a note where we have a question that where a New Testament passage may have been given an anti-Jewish or an anti-Semitic interpretation. And this is certainly one, but you think about the passage where this, the kingdom was being taken from Saul and given to David. Uh, it's not that Israel is being eliminated, but we're getting a renewal of the nation through leadership. And uh, so uh, here in the note, we make it, I think clear, the corrupt temple leadership was despised by the common people. They are not producing fruit. These leaders had missed their opportunity, which could be compared to King Saul, who lost the kingdom to King David. In Acts 1.6, the disciples demonstrate an awareness that the kingdom of God will be restored to the nation of Israel. And I think that, that is really important for this context, a nation producing the fruit of it. Uh, I like the way that uh, Jürgen Moltmann, very highly respected theologian, said, Israel's promises remain Israel's promises. They have not been transferred to the church. Uh, if God would reject his chosen people, he would reject his own chosenness. So I think the Christians who see that Somehow Israel as an entity, you know, those in covenant living their, their life of the faith as they know it, that there is a, an entity there that we are in re relationship with. Um, Paul says the hardness has come over a part of Israel, it's partial bodies until the full number of Gentiles comes in. It's kind of like the same thing we see in Genesis. There's a time of the sins of the Amorites coming to fulfillment. And here there is a time 
that there will be a restoration. But uh, I think when we recognize that the nation would have to be Israel, uh, this is only in Matthew's gospel. Uh, you know, it's probably something that comes in the editing and the work of this document. But as a document written by Jews for Jews, we don't see here an indication. Well, now it's the, the nation of Russia. I mean, it, it just takes it so far afield. I think the interpretation that's closest to Jesus and his people at the time, a, a family discussion, is the right way to approach the authentic context today. Yeah, I think uh, you have a note for Matthew 24, verse 15, uh, which is the Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, where Jesus is talking about when you see the, the what we normally say, the uh, abomination of desolation, but you, you use a different phraseology there. But as a practical matter, you don't have to interpret it much. The, the kingdom of God, which really referred to the Shekinah presence of God at the temple, that it was taken from there and just a few days later was poured out on those early believers in Jesus in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. It was the unmistakable presence of God and the 120 who were gathered there, they were all Jews. So it was taken from some Jewish people, poured out over here in a renewal, as you say, and they, the fact that within two generations, they had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Gentiles involved. It's not that God was stripping the, the kingdom from Israel. It was just testimony of the effectiveness and the zeal of those early Jewish followers to go preach the gospel to the nation. And uh, I just find it uh, incredible and very encouraging the way your translation to problematic, two of the most problematic New Testament verses that fueled Christian anti-Semitism for centuries, you put them in a proper context that really helps defuse them, helps us understand them, put them in context. I think the, you know, this whole area of the Jewishness of Jesus have break roots I believe it's helping in Jewish-Christian relations, helping fight replacement theology, helping change our, our eschatology. I, I'd say refine it some. I don't know if you have a comment on, on how much your years of study uh, of the Hebraic roots, Jewishness, Jesus, has changed your, your sort of end-time views from what you grew up with. I think we're always growing and learning. I like the way that my uh, good friend Marvin Wilson said one time, you should write some of your theology with a pencil and an eraser or a, uh, that, uh, and I think when we talk about eschatology, that's really a sense. I, I like that sense that we should be more person oriented than event oriented. I think sometimes we're always looking at different events and trying to piece it in, but, but, you know, Jesus talked more, well, there have been false people saying they've come, but you have to look at me. It's all about me. Uh, in fact, that's kind of the way we, we wanted to bring out in our translation of the book of Revelation is that it's a revelation, not so much of end times events, but it's a revelation of the person of Jesus, Yeshua. And of course, he's involved in those end times events. So, uh, 
Uh, you know, I think a lot of what we've studied and uh, premillennialism has been very, you know, helpful because uh, often in premillennialism, at least you're seeing the reality of Israel. But I would say also even in uh, amillennialism, if you're wanting to take it uh, symbolically, of, uh, you, you, even in amillennialism, you can't uh, disconnect Israel, the story of Israel in the Bible with the story of Israel in the New Testament. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we see not just the 12 apostles, but we also see the 12 tribes of Israel. We see the foundation, we see the gates of the new Jerusalem. And I think St. John saw this as an entity. Sometimes St. John seems to be talking more about Jewish believers, Jewish, you know, Jewish to the core. And then he's also talking about nations that are coming together. And so I think if we had a better understanding of the Hebrew prophets, the, the vision that they had was that the nations and the people of Israel would come together. Uh, incidentally, I, I find it very fascinating that some influential Orthodox rabbis talking about Judaism and Christianity, for instance, Yaakov Emden, you know, flourish, always think you can remember from 1776, but he was saying, um, Jesus brought Jewish faith to the nations. Israel is much better off because of Jesus. And he also talked about the Apostle Paul as following the commandments, something that I think is, you know, it's probably not the majority view in New Testament scholars today. They, they tend to see Paul as primarily having a polemic against the Torah and became antinomian. And I don't really think you can see that from his writings. I mean, he had Timothy circumcised in Acts. He even said in Galatians, anyone that's circumcised must keep the whole Torah, which would be Paul, of course. Uh, but he didn't want non-Jews necessarily to have to convert to Judaism as Acts 15, be circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses to be saved. I mean, he was against that approach entirely. So, you know, we have to see that context. He, uh, and again, Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11 sees this restoration where Jews and Gentiles come together as the people of God. So I think it's very exciting when we put this together, whether you're a post-millennialist, pre-millennialist, amillennialist, or whether you want to say the pre-trib or post-trib. I mean, I, I think there's something here that we know that God's presence is going to be with us, and we have this expectation of the coming of the Messiah. I like the way that in the 13 principles of faith as outlined by Maimonides, who of course didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but he has a principle, I believe in total faith in the coming of the Messiah. And he says every day that he will come. And even if he, he tarries, I will always continue to believe every day that he will come. And I think that's something that draws Christians and Jews together because we do look for a time where the Messiah will come for us. Of course, it's Jesus. He will come and he will make all things right. Uh, we'll, we'll understand everything so much better when he comes and makes all things right. Yes. Now, I just want to uh, tell everyone, uh, it's, uh, we can't get enough of uh, what you're saying, Dr. Brad Young. And uh, we have a separate seminar that Brad and I recorded the other day on Christology. This whole notion uh, liberal theologians developed uh, in the last 100, 150 years. 
that it was Paul who deified Jesus. He really wasn't aware he was divine or, or never said it. And uh, we have a very good discussion on that and many other things that come out in that seminar that's part of the Envision package. You can go to on.icej.org slash envision 2022, all in small letters, on.icej.org slash envision 2022. If you want to be, uh, you know, have more on uh, all the seminars, all the material, all the content from Envision that will be on there. Now, uh, Brad, we have one question. I will take one question here. And I have one uh, final question myself. This is a Lutheran pastor who uh, part of our Envision, uh, uh, one of the attendees, he says uh, this thing of grace alone, it's an important dogmatic starting point uh, within the Lutheran church. How do you see a healthy teaching embracing both grace alone and Jesus embracing the law? Thank you for that question. And, uh, you know, I, I really uh, appreciate the emphasis that Martin Luther gave us on grace and salvation by grace through faith. Uh, my incredibly awesome wife, Gail, actually has a Missouri Synod Lutheran background. And, uh, you know, we, we have uh, you know, high esteem for those contributions that have been made. So uh, I see that the problem that we have, as I see it, is that we've emphasized so much this gerichtigkeit of Luther that it's an imputed righteousness that we haven't also emphasized the way that the Apostle Paul states that, well, when you have an imputed righteousness, which is, I think, a, if we want to look at that as a forensic meaning in Romans chapter 4, you have to go on to Romans chapter 6, where it also becomes a living righteousness, so that because of grace that you've received and forgiveness, you have a life transformation, and you start living a life of ethical monotheism. Uh, I think that might be a good way to try to describe this so that he says, should we live, continue in sin that grace may abound? He says in Romans 6, by no means. And of course, Martin Luther emphasized grace. I think Martin Luther, I mean, I, I, you know, I would, of course, uh, while I admire him, I, I would criticize some of the things he said later in his life. And maybe he wasn't, you know, later in his life about the Jewish people and uh, at one point, he says, well, James is a right scrawly epistle. Other times, you know, in the Lutheran Confession, we have James. But I, I think if we would kind of balance between James, who says, what's the proof of your faith? I mean, the demons believe they tremble. But uh, Abraham showed faith by action. And I think Paul also says that if you have truly received grace, you will live this by action. Now, I also think in Roma and uh, Galatians, where Paul speaks and addresses this, probably the background is the events preceding the Jerusalem Council. I see Galatians as maybe the earliest epistle that Paul wrote, rather than First Thessalonians, as most scholars argue. But when he's saying the law is summarized by this, love your neighbor as yourself. He's giving a, a, a Torah principle as a Pharisee. Then he gives specifics. This is what we call klau und prat. He gives the klau, a general principle, but then he says, here are the works of the flesh. Here's the fruit of the spirit. So with the fruit of the spirit, 
certainly grace, certainly liberty. Uh, he did not want to have non-Jews circumcised to join the body of Christ and keep all of the, the laws. Uh, and I think he felt like, Paul, that that would compromise his own Jewish identity, to have people pre, you know, who aren't really committed may not understand it. But he said, we can all be one in Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile. We, we are all coming by grace through faith into this relationship. But it has to lead to life transformation. So I think we have to explain it in a way that upholds Torah principles and the love of the Bible, the love of the word of God, the love of a moral guide, ethical principles, as we need to interpret them and understand them, uh, apply them in our lives every day, as well as that faith experience where we realize it's not by works of righteousness, nothing that I've done that I can earn God's favor or salvation. I cannot make God love me any more or any less. It's not my works. But if I'm really receiving that grace, it should result in a transformed life. So that's kind of the way that I'm seeing it through this translation work. I, I hope that can be some help to you. Uh, I certainly don't see any conflict between preaching the grace that we have in forgiveness and the grace that we have in living a life, faithful service, a holy life, a holy life, a pure life uh, for the Lord. And I think that's what Paul emphasized a lot in Romans. Yes, imputed grace and imparted grace, the grace to live an upright life worthy of the salvation and the, the grace we have. Uh, I, um, you know, this whole area of Hebraic roots, so fascinating. There's so much good, rich material coming out. I know you've had a lot of students yourself. You were a student of Flusser, and I, you know, there's guys like Dwight Pryor of Blessed Memory, uh, Randy Smith, David Biven, some of these, uh, Steve Notley that you've worked with. I hope there's a whole new generation of biblical scholars who are true believers and have that same heart. I'm, I'm hoping you've You've, uh, you, you've got a lot of Talmudim, my friend, <laughs> a lot of followers. But uh, I, I, um, I know that uh, it was quite interesting. One of the things that Dwight Pryor pointed out to me, that, because I had, I had seen some uh, pastor or Bible teacher who did, a, I think he did a whole book uh, making the, the explaining the differences between when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, as if they were sort of separate. And they had a whole big study and a whole book of the differences, eight differences here, nine there and all. And I think it was Dwight Pryor just pointed out to me, look, Jewish people in order, you know, they were reluctant to say the name of God or use the the name God, just out of habit, so they wouldn't. So you know, rather than risk, uh, you know, blaspheming the name of God, breaking one of the Ten Commandments, they would just say Kingdom of Heaven, and that was. There's no difference between them at all. It's just they were being cautious and saying King of God, King of Heaven sometimes. And it just, you know, whatever study that was, it's, uh, you know, it's there's probably some value to it, understanding all the points. But uh, I think this is a whole area that, you know, Jesus became an Egyptian. 
that his own brothers didn't recognize him. And it's guys like you that are helping us and the Jewish people recognize the Jewishness of Jesus, the savior of the world, and this and the guy who eventually saved his own brothers and who forgave and reconciled them with him. You make a good point in the seminar we have with you on Christology about that. We're going to end on a good, good note here. I really love this. I want to take you to Revelation 22 and verse 17, where the spirit and the bride say come. And you have an interesting footnote, interesting context to this, which I think is a really good note to uh, end on here. <clears throat> yes, in Revelation, are you wanting me to say something? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just uh, give a comment. It's all about the traditional Jewish wedding at the time and the double invitation. Okay, all right, yes. Well, thank you so much for taking us to the end of the book. Yes. And this great vision that I will be your God, you will be my people, and the beauty of the bridegroom. I note here that in Jewish tradition, Jewish experience, marriage is valued, and the wedding is the occasion of supreme joy and festivity. And so here we see that the spirit and the bride invite saying, come. So let the one who hears answer saying, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires come. Drink from the water of life freely without cost. I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to testify you concerning these events among the congregations. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Well, in Jewish tradition, generally there might there was two invitations, just like we see in the parables. First, we say that there's a there's a wedding happening. You've got to be prepared. But then when everything's prepared, they come and celebrate. So I think when we get that context here, as we close the book of Revelation, the Lord is coming suddenly. He's coming quickly. Uh, there is a sense of preparedness, constant preparedness. And I, I would hope that in reading the, the Newer Testament, studying the Bible, it would bring great joy. We should be experiencing joy as we study. And we know, we have some the confidence that the faith of Jesus, as we're learning about, will strengthen our faith and build a relationship, bring reconciliation, that we would always be ready when we hear the invitation. The second one, which is coming probably very soon, come, come, come. Yes. Okay, well, we just want to thank you so much for giving your time. And, uh, and so much uh, of what you've learned and processed over the years. It takes, uh, it takes a true believer with the right motivation and all to delve into traditional Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, and bring out things that can really enrich our, our walk with the Lord and help us understand the scripture. Uh, you're an excellent filter for all of us, for the body of Christ in that sense. And uh, we just appreciate the way you carry it all out with integrity and love for the Lord and his word. And thank you, Dr. Brad H. Young, 
who has uh, been our guest today on the ICJ weekly webinar, also as part of our Envision 22 conference. And uh, join us again at eight o'clock this evening, Israel time for this, e this evening's uh, uh, keynote service and message from Dr. Uh, Billy Wilson. He's your president there at Oral Roberts University. And uh, also an interview, I think, with uh, Mike Bickle from uh, the Kansas City IHOP. And uh, I hear you have a storm there, Brad. I hope, uh, you know, little snow, fun with the grandkids, but uh, stay safe. Thank you again. We hope to see you again here on a Christian Embassy. Thank you, David, so much. Thank you. We love you. We love the Embassy. Thank you. <laughs> God bless.